0: Shabbat Shalom, Chag everyone. If you ever wondered which one goes first, because it's Shabbat and Yom Tov. So the rule is, whatever is more frequent goes first. So you say Shabbat Shalom, and then? Exactly. So I've noticed that the end of holidays are nothing like the start of them. How we begin is with weeks of anxiety. There's menus and guest lists and shopping lists and cookings and the dinners. Oh, the dinners. And after the initial uh, excitement of the Seder passes, you're faced with the imminent prospect of several more days of sameness. The same menu, the same complaints, the same cardboardy, almondy taste that is almost everything you eat that hasn't fallen from a tree. And in the end, we put things away and are once again reminded that dishes and pots and pans and cups can be packed away for another year, but not the memories. So if your of table, which I suspect it is, is anything like mine, you hear the complaints. We say the same story again and again. We use the same book again and again, year after year. If you've led a Seder, then you know what it's like to hear the questions, and you dread answering them almost as much as you dread trying to sound original on the second night. But I think it's a worthy question. Why the same thing year after year? Which has a lot to do with how Judaism sees the past. You know, secular history, the kind of history that you taught in school, Sees the past as a set of data points. X happened at Y on such and such a date and then Z happened on such and such a date and so on and so on. The history that we're taught in school looks to unearth specifics of what happened with the belief that if we find enough information then we can understand why something happened. So the question did Stalin starve the starving Ukrainians because the country was short of food or because he was a paranoid sociopath? Did Hitler pursue his murderous, ruinous strategy out of ideological conviction or out of a drug-induced delirium? Did a war start over resources or perhaps over a simmering generational conflict? Or maybe it was both. And all this says that the search for data in letters and records and archives and pictures and testimonies will unearth the facts and will tell us the story. And we do this in our own lives too, by the way. In the stories that we tell about ourselves. You know, I went here and then I did this and then I learned this and then I went there and I met that person and then did this and so on. Saying that our narrative, that the arc of your life is a trajectory that we can plot along, going from here to there and there and there, from place to place. You could also say that this morning, when we recite Yuskar, is the same thing. Saying that I had this person. We lived this kind of life together. We went to all these places and did all these things. And then I lost them. You might say, in fact, that this is a moment devoted to history. A moment of retracing steps and recovering the points of a person's life. You might say all of that, but I would say that you'd be wrong. And I want to tell you why. Because there is no word in the entire biblical record for history as we know it. When the Torah speaks of things past, if it's not history, then what exactly is it? And I would say that it's memory. And the difference between history and memory, as I pointed out the first night at my Seder, is the difference between knowledge and feeling. If history wants you to know some things, then memory wants you to feel something, which is what Judaism does time and time again. Jews don't recall history in our religion if only because what we are told in the Torah is not even close to what an historical record looks like. But we recall the past. Not just to remember, but to remember and feel. And by feeling, we become deeper as people. So we repeat these stories, not to learn them over and over again, because the Seder is not a documentary. We repeat them to discover and rediscover. What kind of person I am? What in this story moves me? What of me is different this year from last? And what do I want to give over to those who come after me? What do I want them to feel? So on the Seder plate there is meat symbolizing the Passover lamb, which our forefathers ate at the time the Temple stood. At the end of the Seder, We all make a sandwich of matzah and bitter herbs in remembrance of the temple. And the list goes on and on. We don't talk about what we have, but what we had. We don't talk about what we do, but what we did. And most profoundly, we hear this story and see the change through our relationships. Parents teaching children the story and then watching the children tell the story. In fact, the entire commandment of the Seder night is built on the promise that mother and father will teach daughter and son. But for me, and I suspect for you too, the most poignant moment is when the littlest stands and recites the four questions. The four questions sing about a Passover sacrifice we no longer have, about a meat that we no longer eat, The child singing it to us is saying, that which has been is no longer. They tell us that change will come. That things past will not be the way that they were. And Jewish tradition is clear on this. That the youngest, preferably a child, must sing those questions. So last week on Friday, before the Seder, I attended a Brit Milah, circumcision, and as the baby was brought into the room, he was first placed onto the Kisei Eliyahu, Elijah's chair, which we also have here in the sanctuary. That same evening, we poured a fifth cup, Elijah's cup, at our Seder table. We sent the children to the front door to invite Eliyahu, Elijah, into our home and table, and I wondered why him. Why does Eliyahu appear time and time again with our children? And the answer, I believe, is found at the end of his life, when his time to leave the earth was approaching. He tries to tell his beloved disciple Elisha to let him go and die. Elisha says, Eliyahu says to Elisha, "Shavna, stay here, because the Lord is sending me to Beit El." And as the Lord lives and as you live, his student Elisha says, I will not leave you. So they both go down to Bethel, to Bethel. And as the students or the prophets of Bethel come out to Elisha, they say to him, Do you know that God will take your master away from you today? And he says to him, I know it. But be silent. And then Elijah says to Elisha, Stay here because the Lord is sending me now to Jericho, to Erechah. And Elisha says to him, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they both go to Jericho. And as the disciples of the prophets who were at Jericho come out to Elisha and they say to him, did you know that God will take your master away from you today? And Elisha says to them, I know, but be silent. And then Elijah comes to him and says, the Lord has sent me to Jordan, to the Jordan River. And Elisha says to him, that as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Elisha was not prepared to let go of his master who we consider not only to be a teacher, but his spiritual father. And pleadingly, Eliau Elijah says to him, that if you stand and see me, being taken away to my death, that it will be granted to you. That if you allow me to die, if Elisha the student stays and watches his passing, not only would the promise be that Elisha would become great, but that his greatness would surpass Elijah's. But the thing is, we don't remember Elisha. We remember Eliyahu Elijah because he taught Alicia how to face loss. When Kafka would write about his father, he wrote how his father only valued him in terms of himself. He writes about his father who only showed approval when Franz would repeat the phrases that his father used or sang the songs that his father would sing or do the things that his father appreciated, which is to say that Kafka only felt loved when he was an extension of his father. But Eliyahu teaches Elisha that he could and shouldn't live on his own terms. He taught him not to fear the sunset, but to have faith in the coming sunrise. Because is not the greatest love the person who wishes great life, a full life, on those who remain behind? I look at it, all of you, And I know that we are here today because we remember the spiritual teachers that we have been blessed with in our lives. We remember our mothers and our fathers, our sisters and our brothers, our husbands and our wives, our brave and tender sons and daughters. They who in their lives showed and taught us, like Eliyahu, what courages how to face life, and how to inspire those who follow us. We do not remember how they died. We pledge to remember how they lived. And seeing them how to face life, even in the face of loss, even when things are taken from us, even when things are no longer the way they once were, they remind us that we might be broken, but we are not beaten. and as I think of this so much comes to my mind and I'm thinking of a way to teach this idea to you there's one story that's from the life of a personal hero of mine a rabbi named Yisrael Salanter who lived in Europe 150 years ago the story is of Salanter who was traveling far away from home along with a few of his students he suddenly took ill and he told them to continue on the journey without him. He said that he needed perhaps a day or two to rest up and catch his breath, and then he would meet them at the next stop. Reluctantly, after he persisted, they agreed to leave, but arranged for one of the custodial staff at the hotel to be with him. That night, he got weaker, and the man stayed with him until he passed away. When the students heard that he had died, they raced back to collect him, And they also searched out for the custodian they hired to stay with him. And when they found him, they asked, what were his final words? Did he have, did he leave some message to share with the world in his last moments? And the custodian said there was no message. So what did he do? They asked in those last hours and minutes before passing. I was the man humbly admitted. I was afraid to be alone with someone who was dying. And I told him that. And so all the time he held my hand and kept telling me not to be afraid, that everything would be good. He was dying, but he was worrying about me. This is Eliyahu's story told over and over again of living a life that inspires others to live after we are gone. So we will live bravely and faithfully and generously and lovingly and kindly if for no other reason than to give to those what was given to us. If remembering is feeling then we should be blessed to remember every day. Ik